Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Mark chapter 1. I want to read verses 16 to 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their net and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. Now Mark has put together several events in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that we're looking at. These are snippets of snapshots of Jesus' life. And I want to look at his, the first thing that Mark records, you've got to put all the Gospels together in order to get the full picture of this. This is not the first time Jesus encountered these men, by the way. It might appear that way. I believe I read it like that when I was a young Christian, that Jesus happened to walk by and he just said, follow me, and they dropped everything and followed him. No, they had already been introduced to him. And that's where John's gospel is especially helpful. Chapter 1 of John tells us that they had already spent time with the Lord Jesus Christ. He had not yet called them to be his disciples. This is the calling right here. So the first thing Mark records after Jesus is baptized and begins preaching, the first thing he does is call his disciples. How many is he going to call in all? Twelve. And here we have the calling of four, two pairs of brothers. So I think it'd be safe to say that these were the first disciples that he called. You ever thought about how old these men were? It's believed they were teenagers. It's pretty interesting to think about. Teenagers. Peter, perhaps, is the oldest because we're going to learn that he was married. He has a family. Because the next thing that we come to is he goes, it's going to be two, two events later in this chapter. He goes into Peter's house and heals his mother-in-law of a fever. So anyhow, first of all, I want you to see just at the beginning of verse 16 where Jesus finds his first disciples. This is an interesting point. Notice he didn't go to Jerusalem. He didn't go to the capital. He didn't go into the temple to find the well-educated elite among the religious He picks them from the Sea of Galilee, where he grew up. Nazareth is not far away from the Sea of Galilee. It's up in the hills, not right on the shore. But he finds them at the Sea of Galilee. 
The Sea of Galilee, let's just talk about it for a moment. It's also known as the Sea of Tiberias or Lake Gennesaret. There's different titles for this inland lake. It's in the the Jordan Valley that's between mountains and hills on both sides. So the lake is surrounded with hills and mountains. It gets its water from Mount Hermon in the north that gets covered with snow. And the snow melts and it comes down and drains into Galilee. Out of that lake is the Jordan River. I'm, I'm telling you this just for geography so that we can get a picture in our mind of the lake. Its dimensions range anywhere from 6 to 8 miles in width and about 12 to 13 miles from the north end to the south. And it's kind of shaped like this. 700 feet below sea level. It's pretty amazing. The the climate around the Sea of Galilee is such that they can grow a lot of produce, vegetables, and fruits 10 months out of the year. It's also known for its frequent storms, which we see in the Gospels. Some things happened in the life of Jesus connected with storms on the Sea of Galilee, which we'll see. It's known for its very clear, pure water and the abundance of fish. So, this is the Sea of Galilee. So, this is where Jesus found him, his first disciples. Now, notice, secondly, in the rest of the verse, who the first disciples were that Jesus called. Their name for us, and what I want us to think about here as we read the names, that Simon, who is Peter, Jesus gave him the name Peter. His name was Simon originally. Jesus gave him the name of a stone. And Andrew, notice Andrew is defined as the brother of Simon. So there's kind of a hint there in the way that's worded to tell us that Peter's going to be more dominant among the disciples. It's just hinted at here. He's named first. And Andrew is defined as being the brother of Simon. Just note that. Mark mentions Simon Peter 21 times. He either calls him Peter or he calls him Simon or he calls him Simon Peter 21 times. Now, it's not the most. Matthew mentions him 25 times and Luke 26 times. But considering that Mark is only 16 chapters... And Matthew's 28, and Luke the longest being 24 in length, not necessarily in chapters. Mark actually refers to Peter more by comparison than the others. So that adds to the argument that this is Peter's account that's being recorded here through Mark. Notice they were casting a net. The verb for casting means they were doing this with it. They were whirling it around to throw around like this. And apparently it was a round fishing net. This is how it's described by biblical scholars. This was a round net, 10 to 20 feet in diameter. 
It had weights on the edges, and the thing, once it was thrown, could be thrown from a boat, or they could wait out from shore and throw it into the water. The thing sank. It trapped fish under it as it went to the bottom. And there was a rope tied in the middle of the net, and when it was pulled out, the net collapsed and caught the fish inside. This is how they did it, apparently. So they are casting their net. So they're right in the midst of fishing here. And then we're told, for they were fishermen. Now, first century fishing uh, was a thriving business on the Sea of Galilee. They have found that there were many ports around the Sea of Galilee. Some of the towns are named uh, have fish in the name, like Bethsaida means the house of fishes. And though Mark doesn't tell us where they're from, we know that James and John were from Bethsaida. This is uh, John's Gospel. And they were in business with Peter and Andrew. So they probably were all from Bethsaida. It was a thriving business. And uh, the fish was sold. It was consumed by the people that lived in Galilee, obviously. But they also exported fish clear to Egypt and to Syria. Antioch, Alexandria, they sent fish off. So this was their business. These men were not fishermen for fun. This wasn't recreation for Peter and Andrew. They were in the business, so they were very skilled at what they did. This is how they made their living. They were fishermen. Now, I want, to, I want you to think about a verse here. In other words, who Jesus called were ordinary common men. Men who worked with their hands. There were skilled in catching fish. They knew how to do it. This is how they made their living, and they made a good living. They were not poor fishermen, as we're going to see when we see the next set of brothers. There's an indication of how successful they were. So don't think of them as poor fishermen. They were good at fishing. They made a good living. It was a thriving business in the Sea of Galilee, But it reminded me, as I was going through this, of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 about who God calls. God, the Apostle Paul says, For you know your calling, brethren, how that not many wise, not many mighty, and not many noble, that is by noble birth, are called. Notice he didn't say any. He didn't say None are called that belong to those categories of humanity. He said not many. So a few Christian kings and queens have come to faith. A few in history. But Paul says that God has called the foolish and the weak of this world in order to show his wisdom and to defeat and to shame those that think that they're wise and mighty in this world. So this is a good example of it right off in the story of Jesus, who he calls to be his followers. These are the men he's going to train to carry his message into the far reaches of the Roman Empire. 
Now let's look at verses 17 to 20, his actual call to them. Now the word disciple is not used in this text, but we know that this is what was involved. They were being called to discipleship. Rabbis had their followers. They had young men. I saw them when I went to Israel in the plaza around the western wall. I saw him come in. In the middle was a very old rabbi, and around he was surrounded by young men. And this was his group. This is who he was training. They were studying under him. So it hasn't changed. They still do this today. The rabbis have their followers, their students. But we're going to see how Jesus did it was very different from how they normally do it. But this is his calling to discipleship. Notice, very simple. Verse 17. And Jesus said to them, Follow me. Literally, this is come after me. Come after me. The NLT translates it, come, follow me. So they, they were called to follow after Jesus. The idea is to be with him, to learn from him, to watch what he does, to hear what his teaching is, and to pattern their lives after him. This is, this is the point of discipleship. It's to take the place of a learner, a student, before a rabbi. Now, his call differed from the rabbis in a couple of ways. First of all, rabbis did not take the initiative to call their students. Well, you see, Jesus takes the initiative here. They weren't seeking him. The way they normally did it is an aspiring student who wants to learn under a rabbi, he picks his teacher. He picks his teacher, who he wants to follow. So it's completely the reverse of how Jesus does it. He picks them. And remember, he hints at this in John when he says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth much fruit. John fifteen sixteen. The The rabbis, they depended on the initiative of the student to seek them out. Now, here's another way in which it differed. The rabbis, they, the students were not called to... F- to just follow the rabbi. He, he was not the center of attention. Rather, their chief interest was in the Torah. The first five books of Moses. That's the Torah. That's the book of instruction or teaching. So that, that was what they were going to concentrate on under the guidance of the rabbi. But this is the, what they're following. They're following the Torah. They're following Moses. But notice the Lord Jesus says, follow me. This was different. This is something out of the ordinary. And apparently, you know, the students, prospective students, they had attained some degree of knowledge. They had studied. 
I don't know if there was an exam that they had to take, but it was assumed that they had some knowledge of the Torah already. But it would seem with the Lord Jesus, their knowledge was not important to him. He picked fishermen, men who had focused on a trade of fishing. These weren't the men in Jerusalem in the temple who were studying all day long that he picked. He picked common, ordinary men. No doubt they had some knowledge of Judaism. They weren't ignorant men. I'm not trying to say that about them, but they were not advanced in a theological sense. It's all pretty amazing when you think about it. These were the men that turned the world upside down. So he calls them, follow me, come after me, and what? Come after him for what reason? Follow him for what reason? What's the goal? I will make you, notice this verb that's in there, I will make you become fishers of men. One of the old Christian preachers in the church wrote a book called The Art of Man Fishing. Thomas Boston. It's all based on this. The Art of Man Fishing. So in the Lord Jesus, he's the master teacher. He's the great master at winning men and women to himself, isn't he? He's the one to learn from, to be trained by. He's going to train them. And that little word become gives us a couple ideas. First of all, it tells us you're going to become successful at it. You're going to become a fisher of men. That's a promise of success in the art of man fishing. But also, it involves a process. You're going to become this over a period of time. This isn't going to happen immediately. It's going to take time for you being with me, listening to my teaching, witnessing how I deal with people to learn the art of man fishing. I will make you to become fishers of men. One of the commentators paraphrased Jesus that I think is implied here in this. I, I will train you for a far greater kind of fishing. They knew what fishing was. So the spiritual analogy of this, it was perfect for where they were in life. So this is the, the call to discipleship. In essence, it's a call to uh, serve others, to be of service to others in the ultimate sense of sp doing people spiritual good. And actually, it's to serve others by sharing in Jesus' mission. What was his mission? Well, he summed it up in the house of Zacchaeus when he said to the little man in the tree who wanted to get a view. To, it was too short to see over the heads of everybody, so he climbed up in a tree. Jesus Stopped, looked up into the tree. Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house today to have lunch. He couldn't get down fast enough. And he told Zacchaeus, that when he finally was with him in the house, he told him 
that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And there is a summation of the mission of Jesus Christ. I am come to seek and to save those that are lost. So that's what he's called these men to. This is their mission. This is their task. They're going to become fishers of men. Now, like I said, they already had encountered Jesus. Read John chapter 1 if you want to know the background to that. So this is not a complete stranger that's calling them to follow him. They've had time with him already. They were greatly impressed. They already they were convinced he was the Messiah. Remember Andrew said to his brother Simon, Come, you've got to meet this, this, this person. We have found the Messiah. That's all in John 1. Immediately... They left their nets and followed him. This was a command, this follow me. This is a command in the original. This is not a suggestion to them. They, they heard it as a command and coming from Jesus, it becomes a divine command. So it's not optional. It's not follow me if you're not busy. Or follow me after you fish for a while. No, this was a summons from God. A divine summons. And they immediately responded. They left their net and followed him. It's wonderful. They stopped work, dropped everything, and became a follower on the spot. So they went a little further... Then, verse 19, and going on a little farther. So this is in the area of, no doubt, Bethsaida, which is up in the north part, kind of northwest. More in the north, but more on the west side of the top of the Sea of Galilee is Bethsaida. That is where I think this took place, though he's not, he doesn't tell us exactly what town it is. But I believe it's Bethsaida. And so the Lord Jesus just continued wandering on the shore, right around the, the lake. And he came to James and John. Now Luke 5 tells us that they worked together. They were in a partnership. They were not independent fishermen. Apparently they were working for the same business. And it would appear that it was owned by Zebedee, that it's his fishing business. He's the father of James and John, Zebedee. We don't know who's older of James and John, but they're presented, perhaps James is, since he's mentioned first, and John, his brother. Now that John is who wrote the gospel and wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John letters and the book of Revelation. So he's a very important figure in church history. And this is his calling to follow Jesus. He refers to himself in the Gospel of John, not by name, but he says, the one whom Jesus loved. That's how he refers to himself in the Gospel. The one whom Jesus loved. 
He was the one that leaned his head over against Jesus at the Last Supper and asked him, Lord, is it I? Who is it, Lord? Who's going to betray you? James, I just mentioned this, he's the first, the first of the 12 apostles to be killed. Acts chapter 12. James, the brother of John, the first martyr of the apostles. Not the first martyr of the church. Stephen was the first martyr. Acts chapter 7. But of the apostles. So James, he didn't live that long. He followed the Lord Jesus for three and a half years. And shortly thereafter, his, his life was ended by King Herod. So the Lord Jesus calls them. Notice what they're doing when he encounters them. They were in the boat, mending their nets. What an interesting detail Mark chooses to tell us. How did they know that? Well, Peter had just begun to follow Jesus. And they came to James and John, and Peter noticed what they were doing. They were mending their nets, or the words, uh, the word could be translated, they were preparing their nets. Some of the translations prefer to say preparing, that's the NIV. But preparing could involve mending it, cleaning it, folding it up, and getting ready to fish. So they were doing something with their nets. So them being fishermen didn't involve a hook, line, and sinker. They, that's not how they went about it. They weren't interested in catching one fish at a time. They, these were men who were interested in catching a lot of fish, making a lot of money from them. So they were all involved with nets, either throwing the net or preparing to fish. And he called them, and notice, immediately... He called them, and what happened? They left their father Zebedee in the boat. So they, they left their nets. It doesn't say that, but obviously they dropped the net. Their father was in the boat. So the father is there when he hears this call of Jesus. And these are his sons, and they're working for him. So they, he, they left their net, they left their occupation, they left their father and the family. But then a little detail is added, which is important to this. He was left there with the hired servants. So Zebedee had other workers for him, which tells us that it was a successful fishing business. That he hired other people to help him. He had so much work, it needed to be spread out. So they, they were not the poor, you know, herding fishermen. These were successful fishermen making a good living. They gave up their occupation, gave up their family, walked away from their father's business. But they didn't completely abandon him to just get along on his own. Zebedee still had some employees. And that's a nice little detail that's given to us here to just let us know that James and John did not abandon their father uh, when he really needed their help. No doubt he missed them, but he could hire other people 
to fill in. Notice Zebedee didn't protest. He didn't try to get his sons to come back. There's no record that he stood in the way of this. James and John immediately responded the same as Andrew and Peter and left all of that and became the followers of Jesus. So they're called to discipleship. They're called to be a learner. They're called to be a follower of Jesus. This is, today we want to think of ourselves in the same way, though we're not called to the apostleship like they were. This was a very special calling when it, as it respects these men. They were called to be the ones to introduce the Christian faith to the world. The special messengers of Jesus that witnessed the ministry of Jesus. They were there from his baptism. How do we know that? Because they were followers of John the Baptist. The Gospel of John gives us that information. So they were men who were interested in the religious life of Israel, and especially John the Baptist. When he started preaching in the wilderness, that got everyone's attention. Nobody had heard from God for a few centuries. So this was something very special when John started his ministry. But John eventually said, you're not to follow me anymore, follow him. He must increase, I must decrease, is what John said. So they left their father Zebedee, having been prepared for this moment of being called to be the actual disciple of Jesus. They witnessed the life of Christ in his earthly ministry. They witnessed his death and his resurrection. So this was a very special calling, and to the office, we would say today, to the office of apostleship. They were called to be apostles, that is, messengers. So it was a discipleship, a training program that would eventually bring them into the office of an apostle. It was preparing them for the great work that was ahead of them, to introduce the message of Jesus the Messiah to not only their fellow Israelites in Israel, but, as Jesus said, to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And many of them went elsewhere. Thomas, we know he went to India. Think of that. Doubting Thomas went to India. Mark, we were told, who wrote this, so he's not an apostle. He wasn't even a believer at this time. He became a Christian later. Mark evangelized in Egypt and planted churches in Egypt. So becoming a disciple is, in my view and others, I don't think it's wrong to view ourselves as being called to a similar place of learning from Jesus, pattering our life after him, though we don't have the privilege of witnessing him every day like they did. They could see him in many different capacities, dealing with people, how he was, made a deep impression on them, and prepared them for their great work 
But we do have the four Gospels to introduce us to Jesus, four different biographies of him, looking at the Lord from different angles to give us a presentation of his person and work that we need to be his disciple today. Can a person become a Christian and not be thought of as a disciple? I personally have a problem thinking like that, of separating those two. To me, a person who becomes a Christian, who becomes a follower, also becomes a follower of Jesus. They, they go together. That's part of being a Christian, is pattering our lives after him. So we need to ask ourselves, am I trying to live like Jesus? Am I, do I think of myself as one of his 21st century disciples? A disciple means a learner. That's all it means. It's like being a student. It's like saying that you're a student of Jesus. To sit at his feet by reading his word, listening to his word, being instructed by him today in the 21st century, and following him with that information that we gain from the word of God. And we are still trying to do that today. Do we ever arrive? Do we ever reach the point when we think, boy, I'm, I think I'm really there now on the level of one of the great apostles of the original 12? No, I don't, I don't think we do. I think this is a journey throughout life and uh, trying to follow Jesus more carefully, more faithfully each and every day. But to be a follower of Christ, don't we have to be willing to leave behind anything and everything that stands in the way of following him? Take the Apostle Paul. He, he tells us that there were things in his life that actually he came to regard as obstacles to Christ. His Jewishness was something he took a lot of pride in. Um, the life that he lived, very close to the law of God, following a life of righteousness and so on. And Paul put his hopes in those things to begin with. But his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus when he was converted... I think in a moment he came to see that all of those things that once he took a lot of pride in and was the basis of his hope for the future, he came to understand these very things actually stood in the way of my coming to, to, coming to Jesus. And he says, it's all now to me no better than the garbage found in a city dump, and that's where I deposit it all. That's literally what he tells us in Philippians 3. The things that were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, fit for the garbage. So we have to be willing to leave behind what stands in the way of following Jesus. For a lot of people, it's, it's family, it's friends. Friends and colleagues can be a huge obstacle to coming to faith in Christ. A work environment can be an obstacle 
You find the people at work are anti-Christian in their view, and they will not hesitate to say something nasty and derogatory and will ridicule and scorn. Some people can't take that. They're not willing to endure that. So they, they just can't bring themselves to following Christ. They don't want to endure that shame and scorn from the workplace. That's, that's blocking the way. to coming. In order to be a disciple of Christ, you have to be willing to not care about that. Be willing to suffer, if need be, for him. Now, here's another thing about that. Those who answer the call to follow Jesus, you know, they never regret it, actually. Those who end up being a faithful follower of Jesus, who have turned their back on the scorn of friends, the rejection of family, they don't regret that decision. You know, put it like that, because there is a human decision involved in following Christ, where we come to the point of saying, yes, I, I want to follow him. That's a decision. They don't regret it. And the reason they don't regret it is a couple, because they come to realize after following Jesus that there's no greater person to have running your life than him. He's the best to live for and to work for. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's a great master. But also one takes into account the gains. Yes, there's losses. There's things that we give up that we lose because we become a follower of Jesus. But the gains, you can't compare to the losses. Remember Peter? We'll come to it in Mark 10 where he says, Lord, we've left all. What's in it for us? And Jesus told Peter straight out. He said, yes, those that have left their family to follow me, they've lost certain things, but they're going to reap a hundredfold in this life and in the world to come. And that's the perspective we need to have. What is coming yet? This is Moses had this understanding why Moses, we're told in Hebrews 11, why he was able to turn his back on the riches of Egypt, the pleasures of Egypt, the upbringing that he had at, as Pharaoh's daughter for 40 years. He had the world before him. Yet the writer says Moses made the choice to turn his back on that, having a regard for him who is invisible. He saw the God that he was being called to serve, Yahweh, and also the rewards that were going to be his in eternity. So I thought of the great statement by Jim Elliott. If you've never heard it before, or if you haven't memorized it, you need to memorize this quotation. He's the missionary who went to Ecuador in the 1950s, along with a couple other men, to evangelize a remote tribe there. And they knew beforehand that it was 
dangerous to go. But Jim Elliott and the others went, and they were killed immediately on arrival. Jim Elliott was in his 20s. Here's Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot, who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. That's one of the greatest quotes you can tuck away in the back of your mind in order to keep eternity in front of you. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. And then there's one final thing I want to point out about Jesus Christ himself here. When you read this and you see Jesus making a command to these seasoned fishermen, although teenagers, I don't think they were 13 or 14, I think they were more older, but still teenagers, 17, 18, so on. The fact that Jesus could issue a command like that and they dropped everything to follow him, it it just tells us something about the person of Christ. What a remarkable person he was. What a magnetic personality he was. This is the, the greatest specimen of mankind that ever walked the earth right here. And he... His greatness, his towering greatness as a man, just to me is on display in this incident here. So just think of that. This is is the Lord Jesus, his, his greatness, his awesome greatness here, calling these fishermen to himself. Has he changed? Is he different 21 centuries later? No. We got the great words of Hebrews 13.8 that I want to leave you with. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's another verse to tuck away. Notice it says Jesus Christ, meaning his person there. His, His condition has changed. He was once in a a condition of humiliation when he was here in this world. Now he's in a condition of exaltation and glory. It's not talking about his condition. It's talking about him as a person. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We serve the same glorious Lord today that we see in the New Testament. Do not take your view of Jesus Christ from a popular TV series. No actor, past or present, can fully capture the magnificent person of the New Testament. We need to draw our impression of him from the written word of God, not from a portrayal of his person on TV or on the big screen. 
Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.